good people of the internet, welcome to the conversation. I am your stand-in host, Francesca Fiorentini. Sorry, you're welcome. Uh, hope you guys are doing well. We've got two amazing congressional candidates to speak with today. Um, our first guest is running for Congress in Georgia's 7th District. Um, we're very, very pleased to be joined by Nabila Islam. Nabila, how are you? Good, how are you doing today? I'm good. Tell me about, first of all, tell me about your district. You are running in Georgia's 7th district. Who lives there and what are their biggest concerns right now? So the 7th district is a majority minority district. It's a working class district. Um, it happens to be one of the most diverse uh, districts in America. And uh, growing up in the district, I never saw anyone that ever looked like me at the table, whether it was our city council, our mayors, or a congressperson. And some of the issues that I've definitely been hearing on the ground is, um, you know, about a quarter of the district doesn't have health care. Um, and I would also say that uh, the district itself has the highest deportations in the entire state. Wow. And we also have the lar uh, largest uh, pretrial detention center in the entire country as well. And and that's those are some of the issues that I've been hearing on the ground. And people are also talking about how their wages aren't high enough. And these are huge concerns that I've been hearing as well. That is huge. Okay, so one of the largest, you said, private detention centers in the country? Yes. And then also one of the... Pre-trial detention centers. Pre-trial detention centers in yeah. the country. And then also one of the highest uh, rates of deportation. How does that just like on a on a neighborhood by neighborhood community level, what does that do to, uh, to your district? Well, folks are scared. They don't um, trust the government uh, because we have, the reason we have the highest deportations in the district is because of an archaic immigration law called 287G that's been implemented in only 2% of counties in the entire country. And it's implemented in Gwinnett, which is the majority of this district. Mm -hmm. And Gwinnett itself is the fourth most diverse county in America. And people are afraid to talk to the police. People are, um, you know, people have had their families separated. And because, um, you know, there are people, working class people that, that get arrested or their families get arrested. They can't afford the cash bail. Uh, they get stuck in these pretrial detention centers. And um, it has definitely eroded morale for sure. Wow. And so I want to talk about your plans to change that. But first, just zooming out a little bit. Okay, your district, um, it had a uh, it has a Republican congressman currently who's going to be retiring, um, and it, your seat almost went Democrat in 2018. I believe it was something like 433 votes uh, shy of of um, Carolyn Bordeaux winning, um, but instead it was Rob Woodall who is now retiring, and the seat is up. So why why run and and why you, Nabila? Absolutely. Well, we were left behind in 2018, and this was a district that Stacey Abrams carried um, last cycle. Uh, I think Carolyn Bordeaux's loss was indicative of her candidacy. You know, she moved into the district. Uh, this is a diverse working class district, and I just think that her candidacy didn't resonate with the community. Um, this is a district that's never had reflective representation, or let alone a Democrat or progressive Democrat. And I'm the only candidate that grew up in this community that under that understands firsthand the day-to-day -day struggles of the people in my community. And that's why, you know, the policies that I've been talking about, like Medicare for all, living wage at $15 an hour, a Green New Deal has been resonating in this community, and folks are in, are excited about the idea that, you know, someone from this district can get elected. 
Right, and you yourself are of Bangladeshi descent, right? Yes, I'm a daughter of Bangladeshi immigrants. That's incredible, um, and and would mean a lot, obviously, to your district that is the the fourth most diverse in the country. That's in, that's crazy. I mean, uh, and but and yet very much like uh, under a lot of supervision. What are what? Let's say you are elected. What is your plan to help defend your community against some of those deportations? And, and what is your plan broadly around immigration reform? Absolutely. Uh, we need comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, we need to get rid of laws like 287G at the federal level that deputize our local sheriffs to detain, issue detainers to deport people. Uh, we need to abolish ICE. Uh, we were doing well before that. And I think we need to have a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people in this country. Um, my district has the largest uh, amount of DACA recipients. Um, and so we need to protect our dreamers and give them a pathway to citizenship. And um, those are some of the policies that I will fight for in Congress. And another one of those policies is Medicare for All. Um, you've made a few headlines um, because you have a very personal story when it comes to your family and healthcare. Um, just tell us about that and how that informed your position. Absolutely. So, you know, growing up, uh, share a story with you about my own mother. Uh, she worked at a warehouse where she picked up boxes and she put them on trucks. And she worked there for 14 years and she worked longer hours because her wages were so low. So it's hard labor and it took a toll on her back and she herniated two discs. And when that happened to her, her workers comp told her that they weren't going to give her the benefits that she had a right to. And, you know, being like my mother's an immigrant, she doesn't understand the legal system. And so I helped my mom. Uh, get a lawyer. I was on the phone with her. I, I went to every meeting and we pushed back and we won. And right now, first of all, I believe that healthcare is it should be a fundamental is is a fundamental human right, and that's why I'll advocate for Medicare for all when I get to Congress. And right now, what I'm doing um, with the FEC is I'm challenging the FEC for the first time in history to allow working class candidates like myself to be able to um, use campaign funds to pay for health insurance because. When you're a working class candidate and you're working full time, uh, running full time, uh, you don't have that disposable income to pay, you know, five hundred dollars a month uh, for health insurance. Uh, for some people, that might be pocket change, but I'm not a millionaire, and, and that's very cost prohibitive for folks like me to even want to run for office in the first place. So, so wait, so backing up, you're actually challenging. You're asking the FEC to make an exception or to change their rules to allow you to use some of your campaign uh, funding for. Just being healthy, right? Yes. So I'm asking them to change the rules. And right now, the rules that are in place today uh, make it cost prohibitive for working class candidates to run for office. That's why we have a Congress that is 40% millionaires. The average net worth of a congressperson today is $500,000. And that doesn't look like America. And I'm hoping that they will rule in favor of this request and help even the playing field a little bit to make it easier for working class candidates to run for office in the first place and remove one of those structural barriers that prevents us from running and you know I was telling someone the other day if if we had more people that look like me with my working class background running for office we would have more people championing uh, progressive policy in congress and medicare for all would have been uh, passed by now yeah i mean if we don't get medicare for all i feel like we're all just going to start running for congress in order to get health care if you're successful then <laughs> then we'll all just run for 
Congress, and maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Um, Nabila, you, so you yourself are Muslim, and if you were elected, you'd be the third Muslim ever elected to Congress. How does that make you feel, and especially at a time right now with this expanded travel ban, which we know targets Muslim-majority countries? What does that mean to you? Um, it means a lot. We, this administration has been targeting um, every community and they've been targeting the Muslim community with this Muslim ban that's now three years old um, and they're now expanding it. Um, it's, this administration is xenophobic, it's Islamophobic, it's racist and we need more Muslims in office, uh, more people from diverse backgrounds in office to fight against policies like this that you know, bully our communities and really hurt us at the local at the local level. That's really interesting. I'm remembering of um, in during Donald Trump's inauguration, there were two Muslim uh, pro, not protesters. There's two guys and they're holding signs that just says, I, "I'm a Muslim. Ask me a question. Ask me anything." And it was sort of adorably sincere and just honest because it's like there's so much. Um, Islamophobia, let's be real, Islamophobia in this country, and I think candidates like yourself go a long way, um, as well as you know, uh, congressmen, congresswomen like Rashida Tlaib and, and Ilhan Omar in demystifying the Muslim community. What's been the reception? I mean, in Georgia, right? Like, have you been speaking to? It, it, I don't understand um, how things work there. Is there a big sort of race divide? Is it like sort of immigrants, people of color on one side of town, and then white folks on another? How is that working, and how are people being? receptive to you? So I think people are, well, the Democrats are, are very receptive to my candidacy. Uh, the way that my district is split up, it's 85% is Gwinnett, which I mentioned is the fourth most diverse county in the country. Um, and there's a portion of it, Southeast Forsyth is a little bit more predominantly white and wealthier. Uh, but I would say uh, running for office as a Muslim woman in Georgia um, has been tough in the sense that I have, you know, received not just in Georgia but nationwide um, Islamophobic slurs. Um, people feel that I shouldn't be running for office, uh, that I should leave the country. I mean, just nasty things, especially on social media. But I, but I also feel like my candidacy has shown people, like a lot of people haven't even ever met a Muslim before, and that has shown people that we're normal people. We are, are, we're here to make our communities better and we're gonna be fighting for everyone. Mm -hmm. and, and in terms of you know, being the fourth most um, diverse district in the country, like you guys can be a model for how we can all move forward. And what is the sort of crossover in terms of like um, immigrant communities or, or let's say like Muslim communities or Latino communities, like who are you speaking to? Um, wh what does that look like? Um, are are y'all interfacing with like the African-American community? Sure, so, so this district is what America is gonna look like in 20 years. So it's so important that we get leadership right um, in, in, in the district up and down the ballot. Yeah. And so um, the breakdown is about 21% African-American, 20% Latino, it's about 17% AAPI. Um, there is a large Muslim uh, community here. There's about 20,000 registered Muslims in, the, in this district. And so we are talking to everyone. Um, we have a message that resonates with every community uh, with this working class district. And so I think folks are super excited about the possibility of not only flipping this district blue, but flipping this district uh, uh, to have progressive representation. Awesome. Nabila, thank you so much for joining me on the conversation. You saw her website, uh, Nabila for Congress. Can we put that up again? 
go to Nabila's website, nabilaforcongress.com. There's a donate, there's a volunteer button. Um, Nabila Islam, candidate for Georgia's 7th District. Best of luck to you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Have a great night. All right. We are going to take a very short break and we'll be right back with another inspiring, amazing progressive candidate. Welcome back to the conversation, TYT fans and viewers. How are you? Thank you for sticking with me. I am your host for right now, Francesca Fiorentini. What's up? Uh, we have another awesome candidate who I am uh, thrilled can be here with us via Skype. Uh, she is running for uh, Oregon's first district, and her name is Amanda Seabee. Amanda, thank you for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, first off, I have to just find out about your district. Oregon's first district, it's pretty blue. Um, tell me about uh, voters in your district. What are people's top line concerns? I mean, we're a really, really diverse district. We go all the way from downtown Portland out to the coast, down to McMinnville. We have a lot of rural family, small family farms here. Um, and we also have downtown Portland. So like I said, it's very diverse. Mm. Um, we have a huge immigrant population here, especially from Latin America. So we have a lot of undocumented people here. So immigration is a huge issue making sure that DACA, we have the DREAMers are protected and temporary protected status is, is something. Um, we need to ensure one in four people here in my district are disabled. And we need to ensure that those people have rights and a voice. I mean, we have so many communities that have been left behind and I'm just trying to do my best to represent. Yeah, and so, and that I know is a huge part of your platform is disability rights. So just talk to me a little bit about why and your own experiences with chronic pain. Um, what, what happened to you and why are you such a big advocate now? Right, so I was trying to become a firefighter and paramedic because I thought that was the best way I could serve my district. It, politics wasn't really something I thought was gonna be on the table for me. Um, but while saving up that $10,000 for tuition, I felt work and my employers were able to basically put my functionality and my quality of life aside for their sake of profits. And while I was just supposed to have a sprained ankle and a quick six week recovery, that turned into full body nerve damage. And I've seen how workers' compensation, all those programs that are supposed to be there to help injured workers and to help the disabled, they've been cut almost to the point of unusability, living so many people falling through the gaps. I mean, the ADA hasn't been updated since 1990, and we really need to do better. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as a congressperson, how would you change that? I mean, I think a lot of folks are not familiar with some of these, you know, the top priorities for people living with disabilities or people who, you know, may who are uh, may uh, injure themselves on the job. For example, I mean, I deal with chronic pain. I've had repetitive strain injury. It's its own, you know, sort of spiral of of work, and it it doesn't often involve going to, you know, a Western doctor. Um, it's a lot of maintenance uh, and all that. So, but just what are, if you were, are elected to Congress, um, what are some of those top changes that you would implement when it comes to disability rights? I mean, we need protections for patients with chronic pain. Like you were mentioning, the pendulum for 
treatment of pain versus addiction has been swinging back and forth. And right now we're at this extreme where we want to treat addiction, but we're doing it at the sake of everybody else. So we need to ensure that our policies are realistic and balancing the needs of the people. I mean, we have patients that are literally dying because they can't get the care and the treatment they need. So ensuring that everybody has access to proper medication and coverage and medical insurance and you know that we have doctors available that our insurance covers every type of treatment because I'm sure as you know there are a lot of treatments that you need to treat chronic pain or any condition that aren't covered by insurance yes and it leaves a lot of us paying out of pocket I mean I use medical marijuana to treat my CRPS in addition to opiate pain management and that cost me at least $300 a month out of pocket. And it's something that should be covered because I'm using it to replace at least 10 other medications. Wow. I mean, we need to do more. Social security, supplemental social income and social security disability are starvation wage programs. And I went from earning $55,000 a year working as a restaurant manager to earning $750 a month. I mean, we have nothing, no quality of life, no dignity anymore. The moment we become disabled, we're cast off. Yes. If you become disabled in or as an injured worker, the amount that you get and how much your body and your life is worth is different based on state by state. And it seems like as American workers, our bodies and our lives should be worth the same. It's ridiculous that if I had gotten hurt up here in Oregon, my body would have been worth more than it is down in California. Mm. And my care would have been better. And, you know, it's not how it should be. We need to federalize workers' compensation. There are so many different programs and changes across so many different areas. I mean, and that is just disability rights. We're not even talking about immigration, police reform, you know, our criminal justice system. Uh, There are so many things. Climate change, climate change. If we don't get that done, then what is the point of everything else? Because we're all dead. I mean, we really need to get our priorities in line. Indeed. No, I think that's really interesting in terms of, you know, uh, we talk about healthcare as being this sort of, you know, horribly intricate um, uh, bureaucracy that everyone has to navigate. And it's even harder than when you have uh, chronic pain, a disability, um, you're navigating Medicaid most often. How does your plan for disability rights intersect with your support of Medicare for All? I mean, nobody understands healthcare like a patient. We have been through this. We understand how these systems work. We we know how the denials and the for-profit system where we put profits over patients, we understand how horrible these things are mm-hmm. and how much damage that they do. And so we need to make sure that we are taking care of the patients. We need to make sure that we are putting this as a human right, because while other communities have been able to fight for their rights over the decades, disability rights have been left behind. And that's just not how it should be. And I think it's so interesting when you fight for disability rights, it's it's an issue that really cuts across party line, right? It's not about left, right, Democrat, Republican. It's just about what's moral. Um, and we all know someone or we ourselves are suffering with it. And so it's an incredibly, um, it, it's a point of galvanization for a lot of 
folks to start caring about uh, their healthcare system and about politics in this country. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your opponent, um, Suzanne Bonamici, who's been repping your house district or, or been repping your district in the house since 2012. Um, tell me about her and why you feel that you can do better. Well, I mean, she really was appointed to this seat. She came in on a special election after our previous representative had his own sex scandal. And so she really took over the seat. She wasn't originally from the district, you know. She came here in college, you know, she's not a native Oregonian. She doesn't, she came into this race with $4 million or into the seat with $4 million. And mm. how can she understand what it's like? to live on $750 a month? How can she understand what it's like to have to go to food pantries and Meals on Wheels to get food and to have you know Section 8 housing and all those rules and regulations that you have to live your life by and the indignity and the humiliation that comes with it. It shouldn't be like this, you know? And we need people in Congress that represent that, that understand that, that can make sure that the People's House looks and actually represents the people. Yeah, and um, so what about, I mean, in terms of the differences between the two of you, um, does she support things like Medicare for All? Where does she stand on the Green New Deal? Um, I know you have this amazing thing called the In Inmates Bill of Rights. I was looking at your website, that looks incredible. Um, where is she on all, on all of these um, points? That I think you know, a lot of people assume that Oregonians are are more progressive, or they're they're bluer, right? Right. I mean, while she says she's for a lot of these things, the only reason that she supports them is because she was shamed into it. I mean, it took 600 constituents to sit there and shame her at a town hall to get her to support Medicare for all, even though she has three hundred thousand dollars invested in our current healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So the question is whether it came down to it. Well, she cast that vote. She was slow, very, very slow in supporting the fight for the 15. You know, while she says she supports things like the Green New Deal, her actions, you know, aren't in line with what she says. And mm -hmm. we need people that will actually go out there and fight and support it and fight for it for, with the passion and the ferocity it needs. We don't hear her talking about immigration. We don't hear her talking about the incarcerated people around our country. We have more people incarcerated here in this country than anywhere else in the world. And yet we're not really discussing it or the system that puts them there. Right. And so what are you looking forward to? Will there be any kind of debate or are you hitting the pavement and knocking doors and making those phone calls? I mean, we are doing everything we can to get the word out there. Knocking doors is really, really hard in a wheelchair, especially in this day and age where a majority of our country is still inaccessible to wheelchairs. So what we do is we take the word directly to the people. We go on public transportation. We go where people are, try to meet them where they are and get those one-on-one -on -one conversations because that's how we're gonna get the word out and that's how we're gonna get make change. We're working on debates, we're trying really hard, but you know, Susan Bonamici doesn't really have that incentive to come and debate us because she has that wonderful incumbent title that she really went and 
Wow. So, Amanda CB, thank you so much for joining me on the conversation. Check out Amanda's website, CB2020. That was an awesome discussion. Um, and I think something we don't talk about nearly enough is disability rights and what happens um, um, and how we need to actually spay spend and pay special attention to people living with disabilities. And so glad to have you in this fight. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, thank you for having me. Of course, um, not only two dope female progressive candidates, but also two working class uh, female progressive candidates, which is not always, uh, not, not the norm. And I think that's amazing. Um, I, I, I'm inspired, are you guys inspired? Cool, 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 I've done my job. Uh, see you next time on The Conversation, I'm Francesca Fiorentini. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Franny Fio. You know I was gonna get that in there. Have a good afternoon.